We kicked off two weeks ago in Ephesians chapter two, talking about our current state of affairs. And when I'm saying current affairs, I'm not talking about international scene, although that is important as well. In fact, there's a lot of conversation, obviously, about what's going on in the war, war in Israel. And Pastor Dave and I just recorded a podcast this week talking about some of that. And so if you are so inclined, go listen to that to help you understand kind of historically what's going on, but then also biblically what is going on. But when I say current state of affairs, I'm not talking about that on the world scene. I'm talking about the current state of affairs all of us were in according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, before we met Christ. And that current state of affairs we talked two weeks ago was the situation or the bad news, if you will, before we get to the good news of the gospel. But just in case you weren't here, and even if you were, I want to recap for you before we get into verses 4 through 7. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7. But before we get to that point... I want to back up and look at verses one through three so we can understand context of why verse four is such good news. So let's go, Ephesians 2, one through three. It says, and you were dead. And you were, what's that word? Dead. dead. We talked two weeks ago, not you were bad. And I, I gave what I thought was arguably one of the greatest points I've ever come up with. Doesn't matter if you didn't do drugs, good or bad, you were dead. And what do you think dead means? You guys are smart. All right, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse three, among whom we all once lived, all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, all of humanity, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, this is important, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So that's our current state of affairs before Christ. We were dead, spiritually speaking. And, and again, we talked about that. You can go back and watch the messages, but just for context, you gotta understand what Paul's trying to communicate here. His ultimate goal, and we'll get into this as we move into Ephesians 2, which is why it's important to understand the, the stuff we talked about on the podcast between national and spiritual Israel, is God is building his church, and it's made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. And so since that's the case, you're bringing together two people groups that are trying to figure out how to live together, which I know you've never had that issue before, right? Different ethnicities trying to figure out how to get along. And Paul's argument here is the best way to get along is understand no matter if you look different, no matter if you talk different, you're not different in the sense that you were all dead. You all started in the same place. We were all spiritually dead. Now, you have to understand, and again, I've, I've said this many times now, even though you were spiritually dead, you were alive, physically speaking, and in that life that you were living prior to Christ, you had a will, you had desires. He even says here, you were carrying out the passions of the flesh, the desires of the mind and the body. And so the idea that the sovereignty of God or the grace of God or God's choosing or God's will somehow canceling out free will or human will is not a biblical stance. 
You had a will and you were utterly free to do what you wanted. You had passions and desires. The problem is you and I freely choose sin, but we would never freely choose God because we don't want to. That's not our desires. If you've ever wrestled with this, like Paul does in Romans 7, he's like, what's wrong with me? You ever thought about that? What's wrong with me? Why? And if you haven't thought that, I guarantee you other people have thought that about you. Why do I want these things? Why do I want things that I know hurt me and hurt those that I love? Why? Because that's what your flesh wants. So yes, you were spiritually dead, and here's what you need to understand. The spiritual deadness means you were doing stuff, but it would only produce deadness. It's not gonna produce life. And, and it's kind of funny, in the last several decades, like culturally, and this is how I think about it. And again, I'm not trying to make a biblical case for this, but I just want you to, we kind of visualize this now. The best way I kind of think about this is like zombies. Like you, you were walking around doing stuff, but you're dead. And I'm not saying there are zombies, all right? And I don't know if that idea came from Michael Jackson and arguably the greatest music video that ever was created, Thriller. If you've never seen that and you weren't blessed to, to grow up in that era, like some of us, all right? But it's this idea, like you were dead, but you're still doing stuff. But you're just doing stuff that is natural to you. It's carrying out the passions and the desires of your flesh. So, so you're just walking around like this, right? Like, you know, if you don't know the movie, all right? All right, I ain't gonna do that for you, but... Some of y'all don't know nothing about that. You're like, what just happened? What? Did he just have a seizure on stage? No. So you're, I can't moonwalk. I can't moonwalk. I'm not that good. All right. I don't have the shoes for it. And this is like, has tacky stuff on it. So you were doing stuff, but the stuff you were doing was just coming out of your natural passions and flesh, which was just going to lead to more death. So you had a will, and that will wanted to do what your flesh wanted to do. So that's what you were doing. The problem with that is that would never bring life. So that is how we all start. Now let's get into the good news, verses four through six. And I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll talk about it. Verse two, I mean, verse four. The best two words in the Bible. If you've been around, you know I've said these before. But God. But God. You're walking around like a zombie, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now watch this, verse five. Even when, arguably the next best two words in the Bible. I, kinda, I can't say the best two because I didn't include the word Jesus, all right? But you get it. Even when, even when what? Even when we were dead in our trespasses. But God, context, he's the subject, made us alive. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And the conjunctions just get better, y'all. That's why I say the gospel is far gooder than you ever thought. You don't get one conjunction, you get three. But God made you alive and 
raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you and I, prior to Christ, were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I told you two weeks ago that word trespass, I, I like the word transgress better because the word trans means beyond. And again, that's a familiar word in popular culture today. It means beyond and the word grass means to step. So to transgress means to step beyond. We stepped beyond God's laws because that's what dead people do. You, you don't go by God or his laws, you go by your flesh, which again, we understand this today, people just go by their feelings. Well, this is what feels natural to me. The problem is what feels natural to you just leads naturally to death. And so you were walking in that, but God made you alive. He made you alive because dead people can't make themselves alive. They need a power beyond themselves. And that power, Paul says, is God. He's the subject in this sentence. And if you don't know how subjects and verbs work, subject is the actor of the verb. Subject is the one who's doing the action. So contextually here, who makes us alive is God. God makes us alive. And here's what I find very interesting. If you look back at these verses, four through six, contextually, it would have made perfect sense for Paul just to move right on through those three conjunctions. But God made us alive and seated us with him. But right in the middle of that, if you saw that on your verse, there's two dashes. God made us alive together with Christ, dash, by grace you have been saved, dash, and seated. That was an insert, not by someone else later, but by Paul at the time. Which when you see something like that, again, part of me preaching is not just telling you the truth, but I want you to see how I come to the truth. I want, you to, I want you to know how to do this for yourself, which is why in our groups, we go over the text that we studied in, uh, on the weekends. And so this insertion here between these two dashes, it makes sense in that it's explaining something, but it's not necessary for the sentence. Like you could take this part out and it's still a complete sentence. But God made us alive together with Christ and seated us with it. That's a complete sentence. But when you look at this two dashes, you're like, okay, well, if it wasn't necessary for the sentence, I mean, there's other parts of the sentence you could take out and it would no longer be a sentence. Like, but God made us alive. You can't take that part out. But this part you could take out and the sentence is fine. So you should ask yourself the question, why is it there? Why is it there? Here's why I think humbly it's there. Twofold. One, I think Paul's writing this and he's explaining to the church at Ephesus the good news. And it's almost like he can't help himself. He wants, it's almost like worship happens as he's writing. By grace, you've been saved. And here's what's crazy. In verse eight, which you'll see this next week, he says the same thing. He says the same. So it's coming like two verses later. And so you're like, okay, Paul, if it's coming two verses later, why'd you write it now? I think part of it is, He's like, I can't help. I can't wait for two words. I just got to put it in now. 
It's like when you're texting out a thing and you're saying something funny and you don't want to put the smiley face emoji at the end, you put it in the middle right when you said something that was funny, right? Like you just can't help yourself. You're like, hey, I don't want you to get to the end and miss that that was funny. So, so Paul is highlighting something here and I think one is worship, but two, I think it's for that very fact. He doesn't want you to wait to realize it was by grace. Here's what I'm getting at. The fact that anyone is made alive by, made alive by God is an act of grace. It's an act of grace. And Paul wants us to know that. Here's what that means. No dead person made themselves alive. God did it. It was an act of God. And if it was an act of God, it was an act of grace. And that is so important to understand. In fact, if you're taking notes, my first point is that very point. But God made us alive by grace. By grace. That's what Paul says here. By grace, you have been saved. Now, naturally, you have to ask yourself, saved from what? Now, in the 20th century, and definitely now in the 21st century, most of the focus of what we have been saved from is still very self-focused. And what I mean by that is we're, we say it like this, we're saved from ourselves. We're saved from our desires. We're saved from like the worst version of us, almost like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like I'm saved from that part of me. That, that monster, that thriller part of me, right? And I'm not saying that's not true. Definitely, you're saved from the dead you. Like the dead you is, is dead. That's why Paul later, many, many times in many different letters says, you die with Christ, so consider yourself dead. Put off the old self, put on the new self. So definitely, psychologically speaking, yes, the grace of God does save you from yourself. But contextually, that is not the main point of what Paul is trying to say God saved us from. In verse three, he says, by nature, we were children of wrath. So the main thing contextually that God is saving us from is not ourself, it's from wrath. Now, wrath is one of those things that in the 21st, 20th, and 21st century, we don't like talking about it. Like the wrath of God. <laughs> and I get it. 60s, 70s, 80s, a lot of messages were, turn or burn, right? You don't want to go to hell, do you? Eternity, smoking or non, which one? <laughs> that was a lot of messages. And, and don't, I'm not making fun of that. I'm not making fun of that. But a lot of times those messages were used more as a scare tactic of you don't want an eternity of the wrath of God. And so God became a means to an end. A means to an end to get out of something, not the end of the end that the means he is the means to the end, which is him. That makes sense? 
What I'm saying is this. So much of the preaching was just what God saved you from and not what God saved you to. And, 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 and again, God didn't just save you to get you to a place. I'm not saying heaven's not a place. It is. But what I'm saying is the main point of heaven is not your loved ones and it is for sure not your pet dog. It is God. And so it amazes me how people will talk about eternity and the one thing they leave out is the whole point, which is God. So God didn't just save you from something. He saved you to something, which is him. But we do not understand. He did save us from. Now watch this. The wrath of God. And this is where people get a little wigged out. God saved you from God. You're like, what? Yeah, you need to understand something. Number one, Satan is not in hell. He's here. He will be thrown into it. It was created for him and his demons. But those that go to hell, and I say this often, when they get there, Satan will not be there with red horns and a pitchfork like, come on down. Welcome to all eternity of fire and suffering. No. Satan will be judged in hell. He's not ruling in hell. He's not in charge at hell. Hell is a prison made for him. But here's the thing. Paul says in verses one through three, we were following his course. We were following his spirit. So we will join him there. But I need you to understand something. Hell is where the wrath of God is poured out. God is in charge. God is the one that's doing the punishing, not the devil. So God doesn't save you from the place called hell and the person called the devil who's in charge of hell. No, God saves you from his wrath that he will pour out on those who have lived according to the way of Satan. And you need to know that because if you miss that, you will misunderstand the justice, the holiness of God. And I've said this many times. People today like to talk about the love of God. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. But people will say, God is love, God is love. And he is. But you know there's only two verses in 1 John that reference that? And there's over 400 verses that reference God's holiness. So which one is the Bible emphasizing? His holiness. And why is there an eternal wrath of God? Because he's holy. He has to punish sin. And sinners. Transgressors. So when God saves you, he's saving you from the wrath. That's what Paul says. You were by nature children of wrath, but God made you alive. Now by nature, you're a child of God. So you need to understand that. And that happened by grace. Let me show you Romans 4, 17, 13 through 17. Now we'll talk more about this next week when we get into Ephesians 2 about the role of faith and grace. And it's gonna be brought up here, but I wanna just show you the connectedness to everything we just talked about in Ephesians 2. Look at this, Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So it's by faith. We're saved, not by the law. And what that means is 
You're not saved because you obeyed something. Because when Abram obeyed God in Genesis 12, there wasn't even a law law yet. There wasn't even the nation of Israel. That's going to come hundreds and hundreds of years later. So it wasn't because Abram was so awesome and he was obeying God. I've told you this before. He was a 75-year-old moon worshiper that God says, I'm going to choose you and I'm going to make you the father of many nations. He's like, there's a problem, God. I can't make a child. My wife is barren. Which in fact, if you read on in Romans 4, by the time he actually does have Isaac, the Bible says, and I'm not joking, this is what the Bible says. He was almost 100 years old, so he was as good as dead. So according to the Bible, that's as good as dead. And then it says this, and the barrenness of Sarah's womb. That word barrenness means deadness. So he was almost dead and her womb was dead. I mean, she was 75 and she gave birth. I mean, come on, ladies, 75? And he was almost 100. You're like, hold up. 100-year-olds don't have kids. They got great-great-grandkids. You're right. Why in the world did God choose that guy? Let's keep reading. Watch. It was the adherents of the law who are to be heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. Verse 15. For the law brings wrath. We just talked about. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. Now watch this. We'll talk more about the role of faith next week. But listen to this. In order that the promise may rest on what? Grace. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not to the inherent, uh, adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So by grace, through faith, Abraham had a kid. Because again, 100-year-old men and 75-year-old woman don't produce babies. Why in the world did God choose them to make a people? Because he said, I don't want there to be any confusion about how this happened. This happened by grace. Now look at this. As it is written, verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, watch this, who gives life to the what? Let's try that again. Come on. Who gives life to the what? Come on, Jasper. I know you heard me. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Do you see that? Watch this. Sarah's womb was dead. Abraham and his seed were as good as dead. And if you have a problem with that idea, that's the Bible. That's God. All right? They were dead. But God made a baby alive in Sarah's womb by grace through faith. Because God brings to life things that are dead. He calls into existence things that don't exist. It's by grace. Grace is the power of God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's the argument. And in the same way, Sarah's womb was dead, we were dead. But God made 
life. Called into existence things that didn't exist. That's how it happens. Now, there's one thing here, and this is how we're going to wrap this up, that Paul said there that I want to highlight. He said, in order that. In order that. That's called a purpose clause. And anytime you see a phrase like that, in order that, and I'll show you in verse seven, so that, again, I want you to understand how to study your Bible. Whenever you see that phrase, you should, that should be a clue to you. Okay, now he's telling me the why behind the what. Now he's telling me the purpose for which he did this. He did this. God made us alive together with Christ. God made, uh, Isaac, made the child alive in Sarah's womb, Isaac. God did that. In order that. Now look at verse seven of Ephesians two. Let's go back there. You'll see the same thing. So that. So now he's about to tell you the purpose for which verses one through six in Ephesians two happened. Now watch this. So that in the coming ages, he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his what? Grace. Let's try that again. Show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God make us alive? Why did God make Sarah's womb alive in order that, so that, in the coming ages? Now, here's what you need to know, that phrase in the coming ages. Obviously, when God did this with Abram and Sarah, that was the beginning of the, the Jewish people which the word Jew just comes from Judea, which was one of the tribes of Israel. His name was Jacob, turned into Israel. We talked about that. Welcome to the wrestle. That's all online as well. Who was the child of Isaac? Who was the child of Abraham? So that's where you get these people, the Jewish people, which to this day is still one of the smallest people groups on the planet. Their existence is completely miraculous because God took someone who couldn't have a kid and made a family, and that family became a nation of families so that from that nation, Christ could come. So Genesis 12 is the beginning of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 when God said to Adam and Eve and the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head and he, you will bruise his heel. Meaning you will kill him, but he's gonna raise the life again and crush you. That's the gospel, y'all. So God did that. And now in Christ, it's not just about a nation anymore because Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and tell the whole world, go make disciples of every nation. So now it's just not a nation made of families. Watch this. It's a family made up of nations. Every tribe, tongue, and language on earth are now a part of this family of God called the church. So we are in the coming ages because, you know, this happened over 4,000 years ago, what we're reading about with Abraham. And then the church was born 
2,000 years ago. And here we are in 2023 talking about God's immeasurable grace. But watch this. If we understand more now about God's immeasurable grace, how much more will we understand 2,000 years from now? And then 2,000 years from that. And this is when you're like, bro, we're still gonna be here 4,000 years from now? I don't know, I'm not saying that, but here's what I know. It doesn't run out in eternity. When Paul is saying the coming ages, he's not just talking in the coming ages of human history. He's talking about the coming ages of eternity. So when Christ returns and the new heaven and the new earth are created, we will still be seeing the immeasurableness of God's grace. Watch this, for all eternity. And how long is that? I mean, according to Sinlot, it's forever. I mean, in mathematical terms, we just do a symbol, infinity. And this is when, if you played games as a kid, you're like, infinity times infinity. That's impossible. Just infinity wins, all right? It's forever. Here's what, it's immeasurable. And for all eternity, watch this, we still won't be able to measure out God's grace. That is why God did this. To show us the riches. Remember, verse four, but God being rich in mercy. Here's what's crazy. In our cultures of the world, we like to highlight people that are rich in money. And the idea is they're so rich, they'll never run out. But does God need money? The answer is no. Because why would you need money to buy something when you could just say, exist, and it's there? You don't need money. But there's something greater than money and it's mercy. Mercy is greater than money because money can buy you stuff, but mercy gets you God. Money can buy you things, but mercy gets you a family. This is why money has destroyed more families than any other thing, but mercy is what will save any kind of family. It's mercy. God is and here's what you, he's rich in it. He's so rich. I mean, think, uh, not Donald Duck, what was the other one? Yeah, Scrooge McDuck. If you remember those, those, I love those old cartoons. He had a whole vat of gold and he would swim in it. As if you could do that, right? Like, God's swimming in mercy. He is so rich it will never run out. It's immeasurable. Now, this is what we need to understand. When you and I, because we're dead, when we transgress, remember I told you the word transgress means to step beyond. Here's the law, we step beyond it. Here's what God's word says, we step beyond it. And you can measure that, can't you? You can measure sin. 
In fact, that's what our entire judicial system is built on. This is why there are different punishments for different crimes. You got misdemeanors, you got felonies, and then you got classes, right? You got first degree, you got second degree. Why? Because the punishment is measured out according to how far you stepped over. So you have to measure sin. You have to measure transgressions. And you know, and those of you that are parents, you understand, you don't dole out the same measure of punishment for one that just kind of stepped over and you like stepped over because of the circumstances. And then the other times when they're like, I see the line dead coming, I'm stepping over. Because it's a heart posture. So you can measure your sin. But I want you to see this. But you can't measure the grace that covers that sin. In fact, let me give you the point and I'll explain it. Our sin is measurable, but his grace is immeasurable. Our sin is measurable, but his grace is immeasurable. That word there, immeasurable, is literally, I love this, is the Greek word hyperbolo. Two words there. Again, balo, same idea, beyond. But hyper means, literally the phrase means to throw beyond. Now, we have an English word that corresponds with this. And what do you think it is? Hyperbolic, you would be correct, or hyperbole. And I've referenced this before. What is hyperbole? It's an exaggeration. In fact, let me give you the definition of it. Hyperbole is an extravagant statement or figure of speech not intended to be taken literally. This is like when you say, when someone asks you, how was your day? It was the worst day ever. And you're like, really? Like, let's measure that out. Like, what made this the worst day? And anybody that's human knows you're not actually saying it was the worst day because there were worse days. It just felt like it. Because it's really hard to measure feelings. Which those of you that have a tendency to be hyperbolic, just understand the rest of us don't really know what is good or bad to you. <laughs> because you use extravagant language that's never meant to be taken literally. So word of wisdom it's best not to speak hyperbolically. It was a rough day. But you know what? By God's grace, I'm getting through it. It could be worse. And I've had worse days. And I've had better days. But I know his mercy is new tomorrow. Much more balanced way to live, by the way. Okay? That's a freebie. I just helped out every therapist in the room. But this phrase... This immeasurable phrase is meant to be taken literally. It is. Because the idea, literally, this is what the word means. The word hyperbolo means to surpass in throwing. It means to throw beyond. I want you to get to throw beyond. I remember I played baseball quite a bit as a kid. I was multi-sport. I mean, I use the term athlete loosely, but I mean, I did pretty well, all right? 
And I didn't normally play in the outfield. I played pitcher, I played third base, I played catcher because I could throw the ball really hard. The problem is I didn't have a lot of control. I was wild thing of major league, all right? But I was in the outfield one time and I was playing left field, which if you're playing left field, typically at that in younger age groups, you're gonna get the ball more than you are right field. So I remember one time I was in the outfield and I caught the ball and there was a guy on third and he was gonna tag and steal home. So I caught the ball and I, I mean, I was rare. And if you know, you know, left field, here's the baseline, here's the stands. And so I caught that ball and I mean, again, if you know baseball, I did the, you know, like, I mean, I threw that sucker. I mean, I chunked it. The problem is I threw it over the backstop. <laughs> if you know where the catcher is, it's in front of the backstop. You got the catcher, you got the ump, you got the backstop. And here, the backstop is typically like 30 feet in the air. I threw that sucker over to the field behind it. I mean, I chunked it. And it was one of those things that was like, I mean, even my coach, he was like, Jason, that was the worst throw I've ever seen. But I mean, I gotta give you some props, bro, because I mean, you threw it. I mean, you threw it about 100, 200 feet beyond where it needed to go. And I was like, you know, like strangely proud of that fact. Needless to say, I didn't play outfield much, much more. But I say that story to you because that's a picture of his immeasurableness. If you slid just past first base or home base, you missed the mark. God in his grace throws it way over where you stepped. And this is what you need to see. This is what's amazing to me. The word transgress, I told you, means to step beyond you stepped beyond the law, but what did God do? He threw his grace beyond your step. And then watch this. You step beyond the law again. What does God do? He throws his grace beyond your step. Let me say it to you like this. You can't step beyond his grace. You can't out sin his grace. Because his grace is immeasurable. And don't hear me saying this is a license to sin. I'm not saying that because the Bible does not say that. No, but the power of God, grace is the power of God to actually, as Titus 2 says, to say no to sin and go the other way. But here's what I'm saying. Even when you're wrestling with your flesh and you step beyond what God said was right and just and true, God's grace still throws beyond that because his grace is immeasurable to your measurable sin. You cannot, you cannot outmeasure his grace because it's immeasurable. How can you outkick eternity? I mean, this is how guys are. We, we use sports metaphors all the time. A lot of times talking about and who we married. Yeah, I'll punt in my coverage. And the idea of that is I got someone better than I deserved. I went further than what I thought I could even do. And that is a great picture. God can out punt, out kick, out throw anything you could do. Think about it. 
He's God. So how can you out-sin his grace? Answer, you can't. Last couple verses, look at this. Let me go Old Testament now. And one of the reasons I'm gonna go Old Testament because I can't send the phrase, you heard me say this all the time. God's mean in the Old Testament, like the New Testament God. Same God. God is just as wrathful in the New Testament, but now instead of punishing you in hell, he punished his son on the cross. Still wrath being poured out. But he poured out wrath on himself to give you grace. So let me show you in the Old Testament. If you've been around church, you may have heard this before. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12. Listen to this. The Lord is merciful and, what's that next word there? Gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. That's wrath. He does not deal with us according to our sins, Aren't you so glad? He does not do according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth. You wanna measure that? So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Verse 12, here's the verse you might've heard before. As far as the east is from the west. Do you wanna measure that? So far does he remove, watch this, watch this, watch this, our, what? Transgressions, our steps beyond the law. So far does he remove those from us in Christ. So far, how far? Measure east, how how do you measure east from the west? They go on. Now watch this, watch this, watch this. Verse seven, Ephesians two, is immeasurable grace in kindness, watch this, toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's the gospel, my friends. You were dead, but God made you alive together with Christ. And when he did that, he moved toward you in grace. And watch this, when he moved towards you in grace, your sin goes far from you as far as the east is from the west. Your measured sin can't outmeasure his grace. So I wanna to speak to two groups of people real quick. First, maybe you're here today and you've never heard this gospel before and maybe God is showing you this. He's opening your eyes and you need to be made alive and in faith, trust Jesus and be saved. We'll do that in just a second. But there's a second group which is probably more of you, where you have been made alive. You are in Christ, and yet you're still wrestling with your sin. You're still wrestling with your shame, with your guilt. And listen, there's an appropriate form of repentance that looks at disdain to your flesh, that looks at disdain to your sin, and says, that's not me, that's the old me. But you need to understand something. I want God by the power of the Holy, I say, I I think God wants to remind you today by the power of the Holy Spirit that if you are in Christ, you can't out-sin his grace. His grace will always, always throw beyond your steps. 
So if you are in Christ today, you need to be reminded of something. It was by grace you've been saved, and it's by grace you'll continue to be saved from your sin. And so therefore, if you are in Christ today, you are now no longer guilty. You are now no longer a transgressor. You are in Christ. And in Christ, by grace, you can say, devil, I'm not who I was. And quit reminding me that my sin is the worst thing because Christ Jesus is the best thing about who I am. And you need to know today that God's grace is immeasurable toward you in Christ. And you can't out it. It's impossible. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Those two words feel like they're not enough. but it's all we can say. Thank you that you made us alive. In Christ. And your grace toward us in Christ is so immeasurable that when we trust you, we now have a lifeline of grace that will flow to us constantly and it will outmeasure any sin. But God, I know there are people here today that have never been made alive and trusted Christ in faith. And I pray right now, God, that would happen. No one looking around or talking here as we close. If there's never been a point in time where you have realized you are dead, you haven't trusted Christ, but by the Spirit of God, he's opening your eyes to see the truth, then you can pray with me today. You don't have to do it out loud. And in faith, trust God, and by grace, you'll be saved. So if that's you, you can pray with me. Again, you don't have to do it out loud, but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me. That by grace, you made me alive with Christ seated me with him far above every rule and reign far above my old self my old master and now I'm trusting in Christ to save me please forgive me I'm trusting in Jesus alone thank you for loving me Again, if you're here today in one of our physical locations, you just pray that with me. Would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see it? We got men and women are here. They're gonna give you a Bible and some next steps because now you're a part of our family. We wanna help you. But then those of us that are here and we have already been made alive, but we're just wrestling and struggling. Listen, I get it, I'm human. And I still step beyond the boundaries that God created. I still step beyond obedience into disobedience. I transgress. But I want you to know something. You can't out transgress his grace. His grace will always 
be thrown beyond. It's hyperbolic. It will always go beyond your sin. So rest in that fact today. Be reminded about the grace that God has for you in Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, if he sacrificed his son for you, will he not also graciously give you all things? So follow him, trust him, obey him. But all that's done by grace. And be reminded today, it's always been by grace you've been saved. It was never about your ability to obey. Father, I pray you would help us. I thank you for this word. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like the grace of God. It's been so helpful to me this week just to be reminded of that, that even though I still transgress, your grace goes beyond. And God, I pray that you would remind us, not only it's by grace through faith, as we'll talk about next week, that we're saved, but that's how we grow. So God, would you continue to be gracious to us? Because when you give us grace, when you give us help, you get glory. So God, we glorify you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, church.